All right, well, I appreciate uh, Pastor Inro taking the time in the last three sermons to review some very important things that we've seen from the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to pick back up from where we left off before that review. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. Now, before we read the first eight verses, I wanted to remind you briefly of where we left off since it's been a couple of weeks. Most of chapter 11 covered the death and resurrection of Lazarus. If you recall, Mary and her sister Martha sent word to Jesus that he, that is Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then Jesus did something you wouldn't quite expect. He intentionally delayed in going to Lazarus for two days. And then when Lazarus did die, Jesus told his disciples that he was glad that he was not there, so that they may believe. Now, I'm sure that didn't make any sense to any of them at the time, especially since Jesus said that the illness would not lead to death. But as the story goes on, we, we then come to see why Jesus said and did what he did. Jesus permitted the death of Lazarus in order to raise him from the dead. And in doing so, he uttered those great words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus then goes to the tomb where Lazarus has now been dead for four days. They removed the stone covering the entrance, and then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And then Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, on account of this, many of the Jews believed in Christ. But there were some who went to the Pharisees to blab to them about what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and from that day on had made plans to put Jesus to death. They reasoned that it would be better to put Jesus to death so that one man may die rather than a whole nation come under the uh, power of Rome who might come and potentially try to squash down this little commotion that's being caused by Christ. And so Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went to Bethany, to the region near the, near the wilderness, to a town called, went from Bethany to a town called Ephraim. And so chapter 11 ends with this, verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This then leads us to chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
Now, here's why I wanted to remind you of what took place in chapter 11, especially how it ended. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it caused such commotion and led to many Jews believing him that the chief priests and Pharisees wanted to arrest him and put him to death. And recall that Bethany was only roughly just a little less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. So practically, it's Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do, knowing that they were wanting to put him to death? He flees town. And yet, now here we are almost immediately reading that after this, Jesus now goes back to Bethany. He goes back into the danger zone. Well, why did he leave Bethany to begin with if the plan was for him to just come back anyways? Why didn't he just stay put? Well, it's because of the timing. Jesus fled Bethany after raising Lazarus because it wasn't quite time yet. But now it is time. And what is it that's determining that now is the right time? Well, we just read it in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You see that word, therefore? That word, therefore, is pointing you to the reason why it is now the, time, the right time for Jesus to go back into the danger zone where they are waiting to arrest and kill him. And the reason is this. It's because the Passover is at hand. We are now only six days away from the Passover being observed. Beloved, God in his absolute sovereign rule over all of history, over all creatures and all their actions, wants you to see and make the connection of the death of Christ with the Passover. This is not a coincidence. History isn't just a bunch of random things and events governed by some stupid force called chance, where it just so happens that Christ would be killed on the Passover. No, this is very intentional by our sovereign Lord. This was decreed in eternity. It was all planned out. The Passover was instituted by God over a thousand years prior to this to typify and to teach us about the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. So what is the Passover? Well, if you remember, we, we talked about this not too long ago, so I don't want to belabor it too much today, but it would be good to remind ourselves of the basic idea. If you recall, the descendants of Jacob, known as the sons of Israel, had migrated to Egypt, where Joseph, serving as Pharaoh's trusted advisor, was residing. And over time, Joseph and his brothers died, but the Israelites multiplied greatly, filling the land. However, a new Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph, and he became fearful of the Israelites' strength and size. He was afraid that they might join forces with any enemies during a war. And so the Egyptians subjected the Israelites to oppression and slavery to keep them down. And yet, despite the harsh treatment, the Israelites continued to grow in number. The Pharaoh then commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill any male newborns. But they defied his orders 
And infuriated by their disobedience, the Pharaoh then declared that all Hebrew baby boys should be thrown into the Nile River. And as time passed, the Israelites would suffer greatly under their enslavement. And they would cry out to God for help. God heard their pleas. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he called upon Moses now to lead a rescue mission. And through Moses, God inflicted ten plagues upon Egypt, but the final and most devastating one being the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. However, the Israelites were instructed to mark their homes with the blood of a slaughtered lamb, which would serve as a sign distinguishing them from the Egyptians. And they were also instructed to prepare for their departure from Egypt by eating the lamb quickly, dressed for travel and with staff in hand. In following Moses' instructions, the Israelites took these precautions. And at midnight, the firstborn of Egypt were struck down by God. Pharaoh, deeply affected by this tragedy, urgently summoned Moses and Aaron and ordered them to take the Israelites and leave Egypt. And so they departed hastily, taking their unleavened bread or their dough before it had a chance to rise. And on their journey, they had to bake unleavened cakes due to the lack of time. God then commanded the Israelites to commemorate this event every year, which became known as the Passover. The name was derived from a Hebrew verb expressing the idea that God passed over the homes of the Israelites marked with blood, sparing their firstborn. So in short, death would not visit those who were covered by the, bland, uh, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. That plague and the remedy for it was all intentionally designed by God in every detail to point us to a greater universal reality. Friends, as our confession states so clearly and accurately, and thankfully the Baptists copied them on this point for the most part, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. And this their sin God was pleased, according to the wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. And by this sin they fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And they, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, to precede all actual transgressions. And then paragraph six, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon a sinner whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. We read what Jesus said back in uh, chapter 8 of this gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John will go on to say in 1 John 5 that we know that the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. Beloved, this is who we are as fallen children of Adam. 
enslaved, slaves to sin and death, under the power and oppression of a greater Pharaoh, the devil. And yet here is the promise. Jesus, the Passover lamb, will give his life for many. And those who are covered by the blood of this lamb will be set free from the tyranny and enslavement of sin and death. John the Baptist understood this. You recall what he said back in chapter 1? He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, the next day in verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Friends, this is no mere coincidence or accident. The Passover is at hand. The time has come, and therefore the Lamb of God goes to Bethany. Now the rest of this gospel is going to hone in now on the few days that remain that Jesus has before he's killed as our Passover Lamb. And there's some very rich theology coming our way in the next few weeks. But we'll have to unpack all that in future sermons. For now, today, let us hear what happens as Jesus now goes back to Bethany. Again, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, <clears throat> this account is also included in Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark's versions are very similar to one another. Well, John's differs a little bit from, from those two. Now, that's not to say that there are any contradictions, because there isn't. But it's interesting to note how John differs a little from Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, the location is specific. We are told that it occurred in the house of Simon the leper. And so this, is just, this wasn't just another visit to Martha and Mary's house. This was a very special dinner hosted at Simon's. What I also find interesting is that Matthew and Mark do not mention Mary by name. They just say either a woman came to Jesus, or they say a woman came to Jesus with some very expensive ointment. Furthermore, in their accounts, the woman pours the ointment over his head, while John highlights that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus. Again, this is not a contradiction. This is merely a point of emphasis. Both Matthew and Mark point out that the words of Christ that she anointed his body. And so when you put these things together, we see that Mary starts by pouring it over his head and eventually down to his feet. And John wants to emphasize what Mary does with his feet. 
In Matthew and Mark, Judas is not called out specifically either for whining about what Mary did. Matthew says the disciples, and Mark just says some. Again, this is not a contradiction. When we put it all together, we learn that a number of men complained about what Mary did. It's probable that Judas was the one who originally spoke up, and then the rest followed his lead. Now, why am I highlighting these differences between John's account with Matthew and Mark? Well, by noting these differences, I believe it clues us in as to what John wants us to focus in on from this story. Where Matthew and Mark do not specifically call out Mary and Judas, John does. And by doing so, I think John really wants us to compare and contrast these two people and the two very different responses they had to Jesus. And in doing that, it then forces us to ask ourselves the question, which one is us? Who do we resemble? We have noted in the past with this gospel that ultimately there are only two types of people in this world. There are the children of God, those who have come into the light. There are the children of the serpent, those who remain in darkness. There are the sheep and there are the goats. Now, we also noted that in this world, prior to the consummation, in the here and now, we could speak of a third group of people who claim to be the children of God. They profess to be children of God, but only so by profession. And at the end of the day, they're going to be revealed to be hypocrites and liars and not the children of God. So again, ultimately, we're only left with two types of people. I think here in this story, I believe John wants us to look at and consider these two types of people represented by Mary and Judas. Both of these people had been confronted with the same Jesus. Both had witnessed the same power. And yet we get two totally different responses to Jesus. And so let's spend the remainder of our time then considering these two and their actions. First, let's consider Mary. We are told that when Jesus enters into the house, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Spike nard is a costly perfume. It's also mentioned in the Song of Solomon. It's known for its strong and distinct fragrance. Referred to as pure nard in some translations, spike nard possessed an aromatic essence similar to essential oils, which clung to the skin and to the hair, emanating its rich scent. It was also believed to possess some medicinal purposes. According to Eastman's Bible Dictionary, Spikenard originated from the root of a plant, which I'm not even going to attempt to try to pronounce, that was native to the Himalayan mountains in India. It symbolized excellence and represented the highest standard in ancient cultures. It's their equivalent of the Tiffany diamond, if you want to put it that way. It signified the offering of the very best. In the Song of, in the song of Solomon, Nard is mentioned in relation to the love between a bride and a groom. 
In Song of Solomon 112, the bride expresses, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance, conveying that amidst all the other scents presence, present, only her fragrance mattered to the groom. The inclusion of Nard symbolized their deep passion for each other and their mutual desire to define their love with the utmost excellence. And here, Mary has around 12 ounces of it. We don't know how she got it. Some have speculated that it may have been an heirloom. It may have been all she had of value. And thanks to Judas's big mouth, we now know how much it was worth. He complained that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarius was about a day's worth of labor. So multiply that by 300. In other words, she has 12 ounces of pure nard that takes about a year's worth of work to obtain. And here she is pouring it over the body of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. After anointing the feet of Jesus, she then wipes his feet with her hair. Now look, I'm obviously not a woman, but I know how important the hair is to women. The hair is her crown, it's her glory. And here she takes her long hair and is wiping Jesus' feet. And we're not talking about the feet of some first world guy who's feet covered in Nike socks and sneakers. His feet were dirty, very dirty. And here this woman is wiping his feet clean with her hair. We see a few things from this act. First, we see the humility of Mary. There is no doubt that Mary was extremely grateful to Jesus, especially after he raised her brother from the dead. And now here she is expressing her humble gratitude to Christ by becoming his servant, literally by wiping his feet clean with her hair. And she thinks nothing of it. I'm sure she's aware of what others were thinking. I'm sure she heard what Judas said. Judas tried to embarrass her. But none of that mattered. She could not hold back. She knew who this man was. She saw what he did for Lazarus and for her. Nothing was going to keep her back from expressing her love and gratitude to Christ. And it didn't matter what other people thought. Friends, can you say that about yourself today? Have you ever been prompted to worship and to serve Christ, but you were held back because you were worried about what other people may think, about what your friends may think, family, your boyfriend or girlfriend might think, family member, co-worker? Have you ever been prompted to serve Jesus in some way? Perhaps even something as simple as just talking about him at work, but you dropped it because you didn't want to be seen as some silly weirdo. You didn't want to be that guy. Well, friends, if you truly knew and understood who Jesus is, you won't hesitate a second. We are talking about the king of glory here. I mean, there's people who came to Tampa and lost their minds when Taylor Swift came into town. 
And yet who is she to Jesus? This is the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Word who is God and who was with God in the beginning. Through whom all things, including you, are made. This is the one who is seated on a throne in heaven at the Father's right hand, a throne surrounded by a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald, a throne from which flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder come. And around this throne are millions and millions of creatures falling down and worshiping this king to receive all glory and honor and power, for by him all things were created and by his will they exist. Beloved, this is the Lord who kept your heart beating throughout the night as you slept and then woke you up this morning. Every single good thing in your life that you enjoy comes from his hand. Mary did exactly what any of us should do. Nothing less should be expected. And who cares what other people think? Who in the world is your co-worker in comparison to Christ? Do you really think any of that's going to matter when you kick the bucket and you stand before Christ, before this throne, before him? I guarantee you his assessment of you is the only thing that's going to matter in that moment. And so, friends, when I hear people who hesitate, when I hear people who shrink back from worshiping and serving Christ, they're more concerned about what others may think, i got to wonder, do they even really know who this Christ is? Paul wrote to the Ephesians, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, how could we not fall before our Savior in a spirit of humility, considering all that he has done for us? What is Christ worth to you? And then speaking of worth, Notice the second thing here about Mary. She doesn't hold anything back. She took what very well may have been the most valuable thing on earth that she possessed and gave it to Christ. Mary showed unwavering devotion to Christ. She wholeheartedly committed herself and held nothing back. She spared no cost, no effort and recognizing the profound importance of who was before her in the occasion, she completely surrendered herself in worship before the Lord. And friends, Jesus deserves nothing less. Again, I ask you, is this you today? Is Christ your all in all? Or do you just give him little bits and pieces of your life? Oh yeah, Lord, I'll go to church on Sundays, but the rest of the week is mine. Or, Lord, I'll attend the church. I'll go. I'll listen to the sermons, but I'm not going to let you dictate to me how I should live, how I should be with my friends, how I should raise my children, or anything else. You know, it blows my mind 
that there ever was a debate among so-called theologians as to whether we could surrender to Christ as Savior but not as Lord. That was an actual debate, and it's stupid. As if you could just divide up Jesus and pick what parts you like and disregard the rest. And you seriously have to question whether people who argue such things, again, even know Christ at all. You don't see this with Mary. Mary understood who this Jesus is. And so she did what any of us should do who are actually aware of his significance. She worshiped without any hesitation, without any limits. She offered him her best. And then notice John says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everybody in that house was affected by Mary's worship. Whether they wanted to be affected or not, it spilled over. Can that be said about your life? Does your love for Christ spill over and affect everyone around you? Or is it barely detectable at all? If I were to ask your closest friends, hey, does so-and-so love Christ? What would they say? Would they even know? Would they have to guess? Friends, there's something terribly wrong if people around you have to guess about something like that. It should be obvious. Our faith is never merely a private thing. It will always spill over and affect those around us. But now as we wrap it up, let's now consider Judas in contrast. As we noted earlier from Matthew and Mark, a number of disciples grumbled about what Mary did. But John highlights for us that it was Judas specifically who voiced the complaint. Again, verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who he was about to, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Here we see Judas questioning why the expensive ointment was not sold and the proceeds given to the poor. However, John clarifies that Judas's concern for the poor was not genuine, but driven by greed. As one who was entrusted with their money, he would help himself to it. And so we see Judas in contrast to Mary, who demonstrated a deep understanding of Jesus's identity. Mary recognized the significance of both the person and the moment, prompting her to worship without reservation. In contrast, Judas was consumed by worldly desires and attachment to material possessions. And then consider this, that Judas was actually one of the 12 disciples. How could this be? He followed Jesus everywhere. He heard the sermons. He saw the miracles. And yet he only outwardly belonged to the church, but inwardly lacked true saving faith and commitment. Jesus, aware of this, even referred to Judas as a devil among the chosen twelve. So what are a few things we can take away from this? First, True discipleship requires more than mere external association. Judas's example reminds us that being physically present, even hearing sermons, 
Even witnessing miracles with your own eyes do not guarantee true saving faith. This serves as a reminder that true discipleship involves a personal, intimate relationship with Christ, characterized by genuine faith and surrender. Two, beware of outward appearances. Judas appeared to be a follower of Christ, but his true nature and lack of saving faith were eventually exposed. Again, this serves as a warning against relying solely on external displays of devotion, even when we take of the sacraments. What is the point of the sacraments? The point is to Christ. Our faith is not in the sacrament, in the sign, in the partaking of it. Christ is the substance. We should always focus on cultivating an authentic and intimate relationship with Christ. And be aware of just outwardly appearing to be a disciple and being concerned with how we appear to others. Third, Jesus sees and knows the hearts of his followers. Despite Judas's outward appearance, Jesus saw right through his hypocrisy and recognized his true nature. This reminds us that Jesus intimately knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of those who claim to follow him. And he encourages us to be genuine in our faith, knowing that we cannot hide our true intentions and motivations from him. Fourth, authentic faith is marked by inward transformation. Judas's lack of genuine faith highlights the importance of inward transformation, renewal of the heart. And fifth, we need to examine our own hearts. Judas's story prompts us to reflect on our own commitment and faith in Christ. It challenges us to evaluate whether our devotion to him is genuine or merely superficial. So, beloved, we should be regularly examining our hearts. Again, seeking to cultivate an authentic relationship with Christ. And then six, we're warned of the danger of hypocrisy and false discipleship. Again, Judas serves as a sobering example of the dangers of this. It reminds, reminds us to guard against superficial religiosity, insincere motives, and a love for worldly gain. We need to recognize it in ourselves. We need to recognize it and be careful of others. And then last, we see God's sovereignty in the preservation of true believers. Despite the presence of a false disciple among the twelve, Jesus affirmed that none of those given to him by the Father would be lost. So this reminds us of God's sovereignty in preserving and safeguarding true believers. It offers comfort and assurance that God is able to distinguish between genuine followers and those who only have an outward appearance of faith. And so overall, Judas's example serves as a cautionary tale to us, calling us to genuine faith and a heartfelt devotion and sincere discipleship in our relationship with Christ. And now in closing, I want you to hear Jesus' words 
to Judas and disciples regarding their complaint. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You know, Jesus says something here that would bother a great deal of people and should bother people if Jesus was just a mere mortal like you and I. I mean, could you imagine me saying this? <laughs> could you imagine me saying, hey, leave her alone. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. Let her do her thing. You'd be like, well, who the heck is this guy? Who does he think he is? He ain't that special. D.A. Carson writes, were a mere mortal to claim such priority, he would be very ill or unspeakably arrogant. Jesus speaks this way as a matter of course, not only because he sees his cross and burial on the near horizon, but also because he knows he is to receive the same honor that is due the Father. See, you'd be justified in thinking that about me, but not so with Jesus. Jesus is no mere mortal man. He's God in the flesh. He is God tabernacling among us. And again, as such, he deserves nothing less. Jesus takes priority over all things, period. Now, don't misunderstand the point here. This is not an either or, right? This is not, hey, should we either worship Jesus or take care of the poor? It's both. In fact, Jesus commanded Israel back in Deuteronomy 15 to take care of any brother who becomes poor. So the point is not that it's an either or. The point is this, proper worship of Christ takes priority over the poor. You see, what tends to happen so often is that people will focus so much on helping out others with their physical needs that this becomes the priority. And the proper worship of God begins to fade away in the background. And so now we no longer care about doing church right. We no longer care about doctrine. We no longer care about creeds and confessions. And when that begins to take place, guess what you end up creating? A bunch of Judases. We've seen this time and time again in recent memory. When Black Lives Matter came out, tons of professing believers not only latched onto it, but made this the number one thing by which they judged everybody else, all churches, all traditions. And what's crazy about it is that the Marxist queers that were running the whole thing weren't even hiding their anti-Christian agenda. That's the shocking part to me. And yet this became a priority for so many people. And then what did we see with these folks? One by one, we watched these people begin to criticize the church. Then they begin to criticize Reformed theology and tradition. And now where are they? Not only are many of them no longer in church, many of them won't even profess the faith anymore. They're gone completely. And the point we see here is that taking care of the poor is important. 
but it doesn't take priority over the proper worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Taking care of the poor is to take place within the context and under the banner of properly worshiping Christ. Because when you don't, you produce Judas. Again, D.A. Carson makes a great point here. He says, the objection Judas raises has a superficial plausibility to it. The sum of 300 denarii, the value of the perfume, must not be estimated according to the modern value of an equivalent amount of silver, but according to wages and purchasing power. One denarius was the daily wage given to a common day laborer. 300 denarii was therefore the equivalent of a year's wages for a fully employed laborer. No money would be earned on Sabbaths or any other holy days. The sum was enormous. Either Mary and her family were very wealthy, or perhaps this was a family heirloom that had been passed down to her. Either way, Judas displays a certain utilitarianism that pits pragmatic compassion, concern for the poor, against extravagant, unqualified devotion. If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism even that which meets real needs sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. We're, we're seeing that all over the news. And so what does Jesus tell Judas then? Shut up. Leave her alone. She's got her priorities straight. You're the fraud. And so, friend, you recognize the stark difference between the paths that are followed by a true believer and those who are driven by worldly desires. Take a moment to consider the striking contrast between the actions of Mary and Judas. Notice how Judas's focus was firmly set on earthly matters, preventing him from embracing Christ. But then on the other hand, observe how Mary directed her gaze towards the glory of God. And as a result, she couldn't help but humbly offer her worship, filled with gratitude and without holding anything back. And let us strive to imitate her example, fixing our eyes on God's glory and responding with, with wholehearted, unrestrained worship and devotion to Christ. And beloved, when we do that, the rest of it's going to fall into place. Let us pray.